Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. We're looking for the golden moments. We were looking for the most expressive moments of people, either in their music or in their expression on their face, in the activities that they were doing. That was early inspiration and one of the things that kept me going. Werner really gave us free reign. He didn't want to censor us. We sort of used our judgment about we should film or what we shouldn't film and I think he saw that we were doing that I always give him credit for that even though there were about two or three things he wasn't happy with in the final film he still had the nerve and the guts to be filmed and not everybody does that when you make a film about them Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 98. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Back in episode number 86, I listed out some of the most influential documentaries to my own doc life. Now, it was a list of five docs that could probably also be considered my desert island docs list, if you will. In fact, it's probably right at the top of that list. It's a film that I've mentioned a number of times throughout the life of this show. And I always like to say that it's not only my favorite documentary film, but it's quite possibly my favorite film, period. I'm speaking of the documentary Burden of Dreams, a film done by one of my favorite doc filmmakers, Les Blank, about one of my favorite filmmakers, Werner Herzog. It covers the making of Herzog's epic feature film, Fitzcarraldo. And it not only stars Herzog, but it stars the wondrously enigmatic and mercurial Wow, I did just say that, enigmatic and mercurial, Klaus Kinski. And now that I think of it, I'd probably throw in temperamental as well, and maybe gun-toting. Or was that Herzog who was the supposed wielder of filmic firearms? In any case, Burden of Dreams, one of the greats for me. Now, any listener of the show will also be able to tell you that I am someone who champions the editors of the world. Through my own experience as an editor, it's how I was brought up in film, really. I have not only developed a true appreciation of the craft of editing, but it is my belief that the editor is one of the more unheralded and yet most critical components to the actual story of any given film on any given day. And so you can probably imagine my delight when longtime Les Blank film editor and collaborator, and in fact the editor of Burden of Dreams, Maureen Gosling, agreed to come on to the program. Maureen, who is a doc filmmaker in her own right, she sat down with me about a month ago and she shared with me tales of her documentary experiences, including, oddly enough, some similar beginnings to my own, as well as her working alongside Les Blank for years, their experiences working with Herzog on Burden of Dreams, and her own experiences filming throughout Latin countries, as well as a whole host of other doc filmmaking anecdotes and recommendations. 
It was a very satisfying conversation that I naturally loved, and I have a feeling that you will as well. All of that is coming up in a few short moments here on The Documentary Life. Lately, we here at the Documentary Life podcast have been really ramping up our free live webinar events. It's a great way to learn the aspects of doc filmmaking from the experts in the field, as well as engage directly with the expert in a live Q&A setting. We've already had some great sessions so far, and our one coming up on December 4th will be no different. A few short weeks ago, it was episode 94, we had on the show acclaimed doc filmmaker and author John Reese. John is the author of Think Outside the Box Office, a book that details his and others' experiences with independent film distribution, a subject that John has since become recognized as a veritable expert on. Not surprisingly, this was an episode that was pretty popular, speaking to a lot of the DIY sensibilities of you doc lifers. And so we've invited him to host a live webinar with us to further explore the subject of documentary distribution, to be followed by a live Q&A session in which you get to ask any and all of your pressing distro questions, of which I know that there are many. I get your emails, and I see your posts in the TDL Community Facebook group. There always seems to be a desire to break the code of distribution of our films. If you'd like to attend this live event, which happens on Tuesday, December 4th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in the U.S., simply go to thedocumentarylife.com to sign up. I'll post a link up in the show notes for this episode, and you can also find links to it throughout the Documentary Life website. Attending and participating in the live event is free to all listeners of the program. You just need to make sure and sign up by, again, going to thedocumentarylife.com. This is going to be a great opportunity for you, Doc Lifer, to engage directly with a film distribution expert. So get your questions ready and sign up today. On Friday, November 23rd, The Documentary Life will be marking a milestone. After two and a half years of doing this show, we'll be hitting our 100th episode of the podcast. By now, you probably already know that this episode will be our final episode of Season 1, and that we'll be taking a short hiatus of three months and returning next year for Season 2. Now, this does not mean that we won't still be providing some informative and inspiring content for you. We're still going to be supporting your doc filmmaking goals, just on other platforms like the Documentary Life blog and the Documentary Life YouTube channel, where we'll be providing you with the topics, tips, and know-how that you've been asking for, as well as other valuable resources and insight. We'll also be taking this time to get to finishing our own documentary film, Elvis of Cambodia, and we'll be documenting the experiences to share with you as we do. We want to invite you into the process of the making of our film, so we'll be sending you updates via the TDL Weekly Newsletter, the TDL Blog, our social media platforms, as well as our YouTube channel. We want you to be experiencing firsthand the making of our documentary film. You'll have an opportunity to learn from our experiences and we'd also love to hear any suggestions or encouragement you might have for us. If you'd like to be kept up to date, you should definitely subscribe to the TDL newsletter by going to the documentarylife.com website. It's going to take some getting used to this, not creating this show for you every week. You know how much I love doing it and connecting with you guys. But I assure you, we'll be back bigger and more badass than ever before. We cannot wait for you to see what we'll have in store for you for season two of the show. 
Know that we have an incredible amount of gratitude for you, Doc Lifer. And Steph and I will see you in two weeks' time for the finale of Season 1 of The Documentary Life. Maureen Gosling has been a documentary filmmaker for more than 40 years and is best known for her 20-year collaboration with acclaimed independent director Les Blank. Gosling has also been sought after as an editor, working with such directors as Tom Weidlinger, Jed Reif, Shakti Butler, Amy Williams, and Ashley James. Her work has often focused on themes of people and their cultural values, music as cultural expression, and the changing gender roles of men and women. Her films have been seen in countless film festivals around the world, on national public and cable television, and on television in Europe, Australia, and Asia, and have been distributed widely to educational institutions. Maureen Gosling, you have no idea what a pleasure this is. I am so excited to bring you on the documentary Life. Thank you for agreeing to this conversation. Oh, well, thank you for asking me. I think, and, and we do this a lot with guests right at the outset, so we can have a little bit of context. I would love a little bit of background on Maureen Gosling. Maureen, how and why did you get into documentary film? I really fell into it. I had, when I was studying at University of Michigan, I got a degree in social anthropology, and I had developed a love of film, particularly um, European dramatic films that I got turned on to by uh, my first true love when I was in high school. <laughs> and so my favorite, you know, one of my favorite films was what kind of made me know that there were other films besides uh, Sound of Music uh, when I saw Breathless by Godard. I was going like, to ask if Godard and <laughs> it was right up there. <laughs> it, like, I, it just came to mind. Yes, there's a whole other way to make a movie. Yeah. And, so I became obsessed with going to all these films when I was in college, but I never even knew that there was such a thing that you could do that as a career. Yeah. And I ended up um, by quite a mixed circumstance. I ended up going to the uh, conference on visual anthropology mm. at the time at Temple University where they were showing ethnographic films. I got very excited to combine these two things. That's where I met Les Blank. Ah, so you um, met him very early on. Yeah, and well, it would have been 71, mm. the end of 71, right when I was finishing university. And I only talked to him for about 10 minutes at a party, <laughs> and I noticed that his films were showing at the Ann Arbor Film Festival. Ah. So I said, I said, I'd be glad to show you any, send you any reviews if the films get reviewed. And he said, sure. So that's, that's what happened. There actually were reviews of his films, which I loved when I saw them at, at, the, at the film conference. So he started writing to me, and I got so excited that this director was writing to me. <laughs> and um, somewhere along the line, I, even though I didn't know what I was getting into, I said, well, if you ever need an assistant, let me know. <laughs> oh, boy. How many and, times uh, have we said or heard that one? That's amazing. And it worked. <laughs> Let's yeah. hear about that. Well, and, and not everybody would do it, but Les was an interesting guy that way. You know, he was, he was kind of 
Well, um, found out that his sound recordist best friend was was living with his estranged wife. And Les was still, I think, pretty, you know, he was very uh, torn up over breaking up with his wife. And here he found out that his best friend and sound recordist was living with her. So he was just a, a mess. And he had gotten this grant to do a film in Louisiana mm. about Clifton Chenier and Zydeco music. Oh, yeah. And, and he had to decide whether he was going to do it or not that <laughs> season because it was Mardi Gras coming up. Uh, Creole musicians. He had to decide whether to do it or not at that moment because it was about time for Mardi Gras. And he figured that would be a go good time to go. So... I kind of encouraged him. I said, oh, you should do it. You know, I didn't know how depressed he was. I didn't know how, how more to, you know, what bad shape he was in. And so somehow he decided to do it. And so he flew me out to Hollywood and it was like jumping off a cliff because suddenly I was with this guy who was really depressed. And the only thing that kind of saved me at that moment was this friend of his, Sean Malone, was there as well. And Sean really showed me how to use the Nagra tape recorder. Ah, here we go. <laughs> and Les, was in, Les was in no shape at that point to be a mentor. Yeah. And so Sean really helped me out. And I, of course, I had no idea that that's what my job was going to be. <laughs> um, I thought that Les was just going to kind of tell me what to do. You know, I'm his right. assistant. He would just tell me, do this, do that. Well, Suddenly I had to carry around this heavy tape recorder with and boom uh, mic. And I just was, uh, it was very terrifying. But well, um, Sean Malone and this woman named Karen was a photographer. She, the four of us drove to Louisiana. We had kind of a difficult trip. Then when we got there, we also did not have an easy time. But the first day we filmed was Mardi Gras morning. Wow. Black French Louisiana. Jeez, jump and right into the fire, Maureen. Jumped right in, man. And so the first day that I did sound recording was morning, <laughs> like 6 a.m. till midnight and lugging this thing around. And and Les was actually turned on by the whole thing. So <laughs> sort of distracted him from his depression. And one of the things that I remember that he said, which I thought was wonderful and sort of really said something about the way he looked at things. He he talked about, we're looking for the golden moments. Mm -hmm. And so that to me later, I realized what that meant, that we were looking for the most expressive moments of people, either in their music or in their um, expression on their face, in the act, you know, activities that they were doing. And he really looked for that. And that was all, that was our early inspiration. And one of the things, that kept me going, even though we had a really difficult time during the next three months working on the film. That is an amazing story. And Maureen, I'll share a little bit of something with you. You and I apparently had very, um, in some ways, similar paths to our documentary filmmaking careers. The very first job that I did, uh, I had not been working in film at all. And a, uh, a colleague had had a, uh, he'd approached me, his his sound engineer had fallen through, and he was set to go to Cambodia to work on a film, to shoot a film for six months' time. 
Wow. I was not even anywhere near close to the industry. I had wanted to for a while, but hadn't found my way in. And he just sort of asked me, hey, man, would you be interested in leaving your hotel job and uh, going to Cambodia and dodging landmines and, and unexploded ordnance for six months and carry a boom pole and run sound for me? And I had no idea really anything about Cambodia at the time, and I didn't know anything really about doc film other than I really wanted to do anything I could in film. And yeah, I jumped on a, on a plane and on my birthday woke up uh, flying over over the rice fields of Cambodia. And then the next thing I know, I, I'm toting a, a, a sound gear around and, and working on a doc film. So there you go. That's awesome, Maureen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, once I was there in this scene of, you know, never would have met otherwise and hearing the music and being able to go to their events and their family little parties and meeting them. And I I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. This is incredible. An old time style of Louisiana Creole music is still played by a few musicians on unaccompanied violin. So Flower Films exists at this point, but at what point are you officially brought on as a partner in Flower Films, Les Blanc's, uh, Les Blanc's company? Or did you guys uh, form Flower Films together? No, Les, Les formed it when he realized that he couldn't, that nobody knew how to distribute his film. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, he would get, he had the, the Lightning Hopkins film, which is this amazing classic film. I love that film. He, you know, like he gave for dollars and he just knew that he could do better than that. So yeah. he started distributing. He, he was an, he was one of the early DIY guys mm-hmm. and he, he decided he better distribute his own films because people didn't, you know, there wasn't a category for what he did. So, he really did a, he really did grow that company or that entity of flower films it was quite wonderful to see that you know now he's got this stable of you know dozens and dozens of films although he unfortunately cannot call his company flower films anymore because um drew barrymore decided that she wanted to call her film company flower films and oh wow she sued him and he just he was mortified i mean he <laughs> was the original flower films company name um and that really bothers me because i felt like i was also flower films not just like yeah. and chris simon was also flower films and our um, and Susan Kell, who was involved in a couple of the films, she was also Flower Films. So, you know, um, we were very upset. We liked being flowers, you know. Yes, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> flowers. All the women that worked for him, you know. And um, <laughs> so. <laughs> when on earth did this go down? I, I don't think I've ever come across this information. Well, I can't remember if it was the late 90s yeah. or early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, it was, and he sort of did it quicker than you know. We sort of didn't realize that it was happening quick enough to rebel, 
But, um, you know, he would have had to get into some legal um, wrangling. <laughs> and, oh and I just was very upset. You know, I mean, come on. There's plenty of names that one could have. Yes. You know, and I mean, she could have been floral, F-O-L-O-R-A-L. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or sunflower. I don't know. Yeah, There's right. <laughs> sunflower. Have. So anyway. <laughs> Black Dahlia. <laughs> yeah, so, That's amazing. Um, yeah, so the Flower Films, Flower Films was a wonderful organization that ended up, you know, adding additional people on as we grew and, you know, this catalog grew and now it's Les Blank Films Inc. or something. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, and that's what you, where you can find the films online. Now, there seemed to be a natural predilection for you and your work with Latino culture. Tell me how this began to develop for you. I was doing this film with Chris Strockwitz about um, Texas-Mexican border music, which eventually became Chulas Fronteras. And it was a really interesting experience because here we had been in Louisiana making films about very expressive African-American, you know, um, French, black French people in Louisiana who are very, you know, expressive and pouring their souls out and very physically expressive in the way they um, do their music. And then suddenly we're with these people who are very still and don't move around very much. And they're playing their accordions and their bajo sextos. And, and it took a while for me to kind of get into their music. But the more I learned about the lyrics to the songs, I said, oh, my God, that is where the passion is. Once you had context, and, yeah. Yeah, the passion is the lyrics, and then I could hear the um, the the notes on the accordion songs, and so I really fell in love with that music and continue to love it to today. And it really was my introduction to Latino culture. Now I guess it's Latinx culture. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so it really opened this door. I mean. Then I got more interested in Mexican culture in general. Chris Drockowitz was, you know, he was always um, recording and talking about music that was from, you know, different kinds of Mexican music, especially, and Peruvian wino music, which is this indigenous music from Peru. And anyway, and then the thing that really nailed it for me was Les and I got to, when we did Burden of Dreams, of course, that was a chance to actually be in Latin America, in Peru, in the Amazon for like months, showing films uh, under the auspices of the United States Information Agency. Les, Les Connect contacted these guys, and we ended up touring 10 Latin American countries over a two-month period, showing films, doing workshops, doing, you know, being invited to classes, and watching other filmmakers' films. That is the ultimate in DIY for me, and just really the ultimate in satisfaction and, and, and gratification as a doc filmmaker, in particular one that, that does a lot of work in developing countries. When I saw that, that jumped out, Maureen. I just thought, oh yeah, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what so many of us want to be able to do at some point, to be able to tour their films in the countries where, we, where we've made them, and then on top of that, be meeting filmmakers from, from the indigenous cultures is just... It's the, yeah, that's that's everything for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it totally, 
I mean, when I went back home, I wanted to bring people's Latin, Latino filmmakers films here. Yeah, I'll bet. And we hooked up with the San Francisco International Film Festival and encouraged them to get more Latino films. Right. And for many years, that was the year that they had the most Latino films in their festival. That was pretty great. It's an unfinished country. It's still prehistorical. The only thing that is lacking is, is the dinosaurs here. It's like a curse weighing on an entire landscape. And whoever goes too deep into this has his share of that curse. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash academy today, and we'll see you there. I think now is an appropriate time. Of course, I've been kind of, um, I'm not going to lie, Maureen, I've been sort of chomping at the bit for this, but I've been trying to trying to remain focused on the interview. But uh, it seems now would be an appropriate time to, um, well, to bring up and perhaps discuss what is one of my favorite films of all time. And, and you will note that I didn't say my favorite documentary film of all time. This is truly one of my favorite films of all time, and that is the aforementioned Burden of Dreams. Maureen, how did you and Les first get involved with Burden of Dreams? And, um, and then give us, a, give us a, a quick synopsis for anyone out there who's not familiar with the film, what it's about. Les got introduced to Werner Herzog by Tom Luddy, who ran the Pacific Film Archives in Berkeley. And they kind of, they ended up having kind of a mutual, you know, appreciation of each other and each other's films. Mm. In fact, Werner used a scene from one of Les's films um, in his film, Strozek. He grabbed a scene from right. Les's, yeah. he grabbed a scene from Les's film, Spend It All, where this guy pulls his tooth out with a pair of pliers, yeah. <laughs> which was a documentary thing. Werner yes. turned it into a, put it in his film as a, as a um, dramatic, you know, script. <laughs> film. So anyway, they, they were both characters. And so I think they got a kick out of each other. And somewhere mm. along the line, Peruvian producer, maybe it was his brother. I can't remember mm. said, when he was about to shoot his film Fitzcarraldo in the Peruvian Amazon, the guy said, you know, Werner, we should probably do a making of this oh, film boy. because it's going to be kind of dramatic. Because they, you know, after he had done Aguirre, The Wrath of God, 
which was also pretty dramatic. Um, <laughs> they probably figured, okay, let's let's document this. One. Yeah, right. Let's get this on film. <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know if Tom suggested it or if Werner just thought of Les automatically that he would be the guy to do it. And so when it was presented to us, we were sort of like, ooh, do we want to do this? I mean, Werner Herzog has a reputation for like jumping into cactus. And, <laughs> and um, you know, we heard that, you know, changes between him and Klaus Kinski, you know, about killing each other. I mean, just really pretty dramatic stuff. And we weren't sure if we wanted to get involved with that kind of stuff <laughs> but but it it then it started to feel like how could we not do this that's right it just sounded so interesting and so different and the money was there to pay for us to do it and that's pretty hard to turn down and Les always loved nature and we would we knew we'd be in the jungle and I was fascinated to know that we were going to meet indigenous people in the Amazon. And anyway, it sounded pretty like an amazing opportunity. So we did it. We jumped in. So Werner's film was about this Irish rubber, uh, this guy who was trying to find rubber trees in the Peruvian Amazon. It's based on a true story. There was a guy named Fitzgerald at the turn of the 20th century who actually went into the jungle and the image that Werner liked very much from the story was that this guy pulled a steamship over a mountain to get across this hill that would allow him to get to this rubber field on the parallel river. And which of course you guys would use adeptly as very metaphorically within, within your documentary of that film uh, in burden of dreams. Yes. And of course he did too, actually. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He always talked about it as the central metaphor of his film. And yeah. this, this guy want, wanted to find these rubber trees, extract the rubber, make money, and bring opera to the jungle. He wanted to bring civilization to the people of Manaus, Brazil, and yeah. build an opera house. So that's what the story was based on. And we did the making of... When I came back to Germany and I tried to hold all the investors together, they said to me, well, how can you continue? Can you, do you have the strength or the will or the enthusiasm or so? And I said, how can you ask this question? It is, if I abandon this project, I would be a man without dreams and I don't want to live like that. I, I, I live my life or I end my life with this project. The two things we knew we had to do were to tell the story of Fitzcarraldo because we wanted to, our film to be able to stand alone if people didn't hadn't seen Fitzcarraldo before. And we also, especially after the experience of being there and seeing Werner just sort of go nuts in terms of the difficulty that he had trying to do the film. And, um, of course, the way he expressed his craziness was not by throwing things, which that was Klaus Kinski. He did threw things when he was upset. Werner was always very cool headed, but it came out in his 
language, as you can see in the film, <laughs> in what we call the jungle speech. There, there is some sort of a harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, uh, we, in comparison to that enormous articulation, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel, a cheap novel. One of the greatest speeches of cinema of, of all time, let's be honest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's really pretty amazing if you haven't seen it. So, so Maureen, yeah. what was the relationship and the dynamics that was set up between, you know, Werner and his filmmaking team and then what you guys were doing there? I mean, did you have limits? Um, what kind of impact did Werner or what kind of say did Werner say on or have on what you were filming? How did that work? How was that set up? Uh, Werner really gave us free reign. He did. He didn't. He wasn't. He didn't want to um, censor us. Um, we sort of used our judgment yeah. about what we should film or what we shouldn't film. And I think he saw that we were doing that. And so he just tell us not to do X. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I always give him credit for that. And I give him credit for even the way he, you know, handled his portrayal in the film afterwards. Mm. He always, uh, I always give him credit for, even though there were about two or three things he wasn't happy with in the final film, mm he still had the nerve and the guts to be filmed. And not everybody does that right. when you make a film about them. Sometimes people get really upset and they tell you not to release something, as we know with yeah. Leon Russell, which is a whole other story. Yeah. I do get Pacho Lane, who had was a total linguist uh, in terms of he not only spoke Spanish and Portuguese, he spoke German, which were all the languages of the people on the crew. So he, he could figure out what was going on when we didn't know, you know, when the Germans were t just talking to each other. And we, we both had pretty decent, you know, Spanish abilities, but then Pacho also could talk to the, the, uh, Brazilian engineer and the Brazilian sound recordist. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it, that that brings up actually something, Maureen. And, and I've, of course, I've seen Burden of Dreams, I don't, I countless, countless times. And one of the things that I've always wondered, because my wife and I do a lot of work in developing countries, something I've always been curious about was, uh, you know, a Western crew, in this case, operating with, with you know, Peruvian and indigenous uh, tribes. I'm curious about what Werner's sort of, um, sort of rules and regulations, if you will, around that interaction was with you guys and as well as his crew as well. And then I'd love to hear about the perception, maybe how Klaus treated um, the indigenous culture and what that, uh, what those, what those attitudes were like. When I first heard that Werner wanted to do separate camps, I thought that doesn't sound right. But right. then I realized right. that he actually was right mm. because the film camp that we were in was set up for people that were used to Western cultural things from yeah. having beds and um, toilets and kitchen with a refrigerator and stuff like that, even though this, the beautiful little cottages were made out of the local um, 
you know, materials, lianas and wood and bamboo and stuff like that. And the native people's camp was for, you know, set up with so they could have fires to cook their food. And the problem with it, though, ended up being really pointed out by the priests who showed up and and, um, you know, said that this is not how uh, these people live mm. they, because there were dormitories, you know, even though they were made out of the local materials, <laughs> yeah. and, but they were dormitories. People, these folks never live in that kind of place. <laughs> and the other thing that was problematic was that, that it was mostly men who came and they were not a, allowed to bring their wives. And that was kind of odd for them because the women were the ones that made the masato, which was the drink that they used all the time. And they couldn't drink masato made by somebody from another tribe. And so it made it really complicated. And, um, you know, ultimately, they didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, they they were getting paid, they had a job, and they had this Peruvian guy who um, had a relationship with the chief of in this case, the Kampa or the Ashanenka people, a guy named David, who spoke Spanish as well as their indigenous language. So he was like their, their translator. You know, Jorge Vignati, Herzog's AD, who actually was this really wonderful filmmaker who passed away just in the last year in Peru, um, who was very well known. Um, he was the one that had to, you know, relay the messages about what Herzog wanted them to do. And they didn't always get what what they 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 they, they did what they were told, but they didn't understand it at all, I don't think. And um so it was kind of it was kind of a mix in terms of on the one hand he did a few things right and then on the other hand he didn't take into account all these other cultural things. Well, from that experience, Maureen, I'm curious what you and Les may have brought into future uh, filmmaking excursions that you would do. What you learned from that that um, from that experience that you could then bring with you later on. Well, later on, I did bird, um, blossoms of fire yeah. in on on indigenous people in southern Mexico, and as someone who got a degree in social anthropology, I really wanted to make sure that I crossed my T's and dotted my I's right. in terms of research. Right. Trying to make sure my film partner, Ellen Osborne at the time, she wasn't as interested in the research part. She she was really good at some other stuff like logistics. But I just was so determined to read everything I could get my hands on mm-hmm. and the kinds of questions, the kinds of things we were going to look for in this place that has a reputation of being a matriarchy, um, I knew that because it was a sensitive topic that we really needed to be, you know, be culturally sensitive. And so I was determined to do that. It worked up to a point. Yeah, that's right, 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 right. There's only so much you can actually do to prepare for these instances, well, right? No, re- the reason that it didn't work was because the first week we got there, an article came out in Elle magazine that was totally irresponsible oh, no. and totally um, making these grand and stereotypical statements about the 
women of Hutitan having lovers and that their that they their husbands stayed at home taking care of the kids and and that they worked and the husbands didn't work and people were mortified to this by this article oh no and so we were we were coming in we'd already been there we established relationships <laughs> we we brought photos back for people from the last trip wow. we you did everything you could do to best yeah. prepare for what you were about to do yeah and suddenly everybody thought we were from Elle magazine oh. and didn't want to talk. You know, there were people that, that talked, they were talking about us. They didn't want to be interviewed and it was really upsetting. I mean, it was just devastating. And then we realized, you know, this has to be in the film. Yeah. Oh, right. Because, yeah. Because this is really an important issue about people being able to have control of their own you know, identity in the, in the media. And so we did, we had some good relationships already, and those are the ones we depended on. And they helped us smooth the way for some other people. And then there were additional people who just didn't want to be filmed. And so we just didn't film them. And so we found alternatives. And, um, but it was part of the story. It's a part, part of the story of the myth of the matriarchy and and um, not that I think that it's a myth anymore, but that there's uh, definitely stereotypical imagery about this community that is has hasn't always been good. And so there's a real mix of feelings about in in their community about whether they think they are a matriarchy or not. Maureen, how can we see your films? Obviously, you can mention how we can see Les's films, and but I'd love to know how we we can see your films as well. Well, my film Blossoms of Fire is not in distribution at the moment, and I'm really trying to get it out there again. So I'm working on that because I want to remaster it and yeah. you know get it streaming and all this kind of stuff. However, a lot of the films I've edited are out there. In fact, two of them are just getting released theatrically and on iTunes and educationally. One is called A Dangerous Idea, directed by Stephanie Welch, and it's about eugenics, genetics, and the American dream. And Jed Reif, who was the producer on it, who I've worked with now for many years and share an office with, he always, when people bring projects to him, he always gives me first crack at it if I want to edit it. So I've been able to edit some great films because of that, one of which was this film, A Dangerous Idea. The second film is The Long Shadow, directed by Francis Causey and produced by Sally Holst and Jed Reif again. And I was co-creator and editor on it. The Long Shadow is about the legacy of slavery. And it's seen through the eyes of a white woman growing up in privilege in the South and coming to terms with the fact that her ancestors were slave owners, realizing when she was a child that something was very wrong with the way that black people were being treated around her. Maureen, it is it is very comforting and, and really just amazing to know that there's someone like yourself out there still making these important films. I've been speaking with Maureen Gosling 
legendary documentary filmmaker and editor. And uh, this is a conversation that I've wanted to have for quite some time. As I mentioned earlier, Burden of Dreams is one of my all-time favorite films. And by the way, if and when we ever get Werner to, to agree to come on to the documentary life, I'll be letting him know that I preferred your film over the film that uh, that was his. Um, how do you imagine he'd react to that, by the way? <laughs> well, I think he's heard it before. <laughs> Okay. happy about it yeah but i should probably tread lightly <laughs> yeah yeah maureen thank you so much for being on the program today it's been an absolute delight to have this conversation thank you for having me Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.